this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, on this episode, we've got half the union here. <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty filled up. Uh, this is probably, maybe aside from our Nirvana episode, the most attended roundtable well, uh, 1992 is kind of important, I guess. Yeah, we won't miss a single album that was released during the entire year. <laughs> it's all going to be covered here. It should be here. well covered. Yes, I, I, I expect that this group uh, of, of ne'er-do-wells will, will cover it all. Uh, I'm just going to look at my screen and see everybody who's here. Uh, we've got returning veterans, and we've got... Uh, and we've got uh, well, one new person. Let's start with our rookie, Hale. It'll be me. Where are you joining us from, Hale? I'm joining from Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York. The epicenter of everything cool from 2000 to 2003. Especially of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are you doing this evening? I'm doing all right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that um, I'm no longer the epicenter of cool. I thought my presence was worth more than that. But no, uh, fortunately, that has uh, taken up residency in Austin, Texas for the last uh, <laughs> since Jay moved down there. That is the epicenter of cool. I don't know if you know, but Jay, wherever Jay goes, that's the uh, that's the cool center. Oh, then I'll <laughs> see you there. <laughs> I just learned that that's the second most expensive housing market in the country after San Francisco. Wow. So, Absolutely. really, congratulations! That's crazy. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> you. And also, Jay raises the cost of living wherever he goes. Yes, with his outlandish uh, uh, spending on on uh, real estate. Just really, down here, we're talking mortgages already. I mean, yeah. that means we're approaching fifty, right? <laughs> yes, we are. Anybody got a get a good a good uh, a guy for their uh, for their refis? Uh, anyway. Everybody else has been here. Welcome back, Jeff Gentis. You were just here not long ago, I believe. True. How's it going, guys? Great. Uh, below you in my square section, uh, he's going by the name Willow Red Dog, which sounds like uh, one of Will Smith's kids. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on there. Welcome back, Joe Royland. Hello, good to be here tonight. That's actually a, a reference to a former dog. So, oh, gotcha. I thought maybe there was a '92 reference in there somehow that we didn't. No. We we're going <laughs> to learn about something obscure. Just, just how it signed me in via Google. So, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> uh, square below that, Ian McIver. Welcome back, sir. I like seeing that Hello record there. collection. Has it grown since the last time we've spoken to you? Um, only by one. My sister got me the uh, Dave Gone and Soul Savers uh, LP for Christmas. Nice, nice. I need add to, to add, add to the mode collection. Yes, there you go. Uh, crossing over, passing Jay in the middle. Uh, <laughs> Citizen Eric, otherwise known as Eric Peterson. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Good evening. 
like that reference. If you'll notice, uh, I have uh, performing behind me, for those who are watching the video, uh, Alice in Chains from the movie Singles uh, playing live. I uh, just finished watching Singles, so. Good prep. Good prep for this. Nice. That's a, that's a pretty serious drum riser for a club show. I'm just saying. Uh, it, it was like in a warehouse. Oh, okay. If I remember that scene correctly, yes. it wasn't even like in a proper venue. <laughs> just put up on mezzanine on the stairs. <laughs> I think I want to say that's just plywood beh- that they're playing on. It's not like a, a really fancy uh, riser going on there. Uh, up above Citizen Eric, we've got Phil Fleming. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Hello. Uh, to uh, uh, going cross square from me. Carl Foss, welcome back to the show as well. Thank you. Thank you. And last but not least, uh, a man that uh, you've recently gotten to know uh, once again. He's been, I mean, he's been here forever, but Chip Midnight uh, joining us now for interviews. The uh, most recently just went up the interview with uh, Terry from XYZ. I can't say his last name. I'm going to screw it up. Loose. And I don't, I don't like to screw up last names. It's very important to me not to... Uh, not to mess up people's names. Elouse. 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 Uh, when I listened to that, because I edited it, I was very distracted by his accent. Let me just say, I, I was doing a French accent for the rest of the day. <laughs> it was... Can, can we get that tonight? Yeah. I will be doing the whole episode. <laughs> like <laughs> Elouse. <laughs> Talking about what goes on and the rock and roll shows. That is uh, almost as bad as my British accent. <laughs> yes, it is. Close. Uh, I think, I think uh, my wife heard me through the walls and just dropped a glass and it broke from, from hearing my terrible accent. Uh, we are here to discuss 30 years ago. Everybody let the groan out now. Night. <laughs> 1992 we do this every year the first round table of the season is going back and revisiting albums for the anniversary you know last year it was 91 and in 2021 before that it was 1990 we've covered up to i think we've already done i think 95 through 99 is that correct jay Can you check my math on that uh, I think we only have a couple more years left to do, and then we maybe have to recycle uh, these uh, these shows. Maybe That's do them again. Right. Yeah, I hadn't Find thought about syndication. that. <laughs> yes. Dig, dig, dig me out reruns? Yes, reruns. <laughs> the focus of these shows, we know the big albums that came out these years, and some of them stood the test of time. Maybe some of them haven't, and we'll we'll talk about those, but we're really interested in digging out stuff that maybe flew a little under the radar, maybe was underappreciated, overlooked, stuff that uh, maybe didn't get found until years later. Uh, maybe there are things that you were on the train at, right when it left the station back in 92. I realized personally that a lot of the stuff that I really liked from 1992, I didn't discover it until 93 or 94. And some as late as, as the late 90s. I noticed too. Uh, I looked at some playlists for you know the rock hits of the of ninety two, and a lot of those albums are from ninety one. <laughs> right. So yeah, the isn't time. that always kind of the way it is though? That mm. there's that carryover. There's no sure. like, it's not. It's, oh, nineteen ninety two. We got to throw it out of that old stuff. 
Well, if you think about the fall mm. of 91, there were so many big albums released. It's not surprising that they were going multiple singles. I mean, yeah. Guns N' Roses was releasing singles into the mid of the middle of the decade off of Use Your Illusion. So mm-hmm. not yeah. surprised. And, and obviously Nirvana really, you know, smells like Team Spirit hit in fall of 91. But you got four more singles coming after that, all in 92, 93. So let's get into what we like to talk about here, which is the albums that came out. So I'm going to go around this virtual room. I'm going to ask each of you, give me one album, and we'll get to more picks later, but give me one of your albums that you think, wow, this was really overlooked at the time, but has become really important either to you personally or you think has become you know, more of an influential album than maybe people realized at the time. I'm going to start in reverse order of who I just went to. So I'm going to start with Chip Midnight. Chip, what's a record from 92 that fits that criteria for you? Uh, for me, it's Erotica by the Darling Buds. Ah. So they were a UK band, female singer. Um, people might know them from the So I Married an Axe Murder soundtrack. They had a single called uh, Long Day in the Universe. Um, I think Madonna's Erotica came out the same year. And so there was that kind of you know mm-hmm. confusion between the two. And they were a UK band. And I... Honestly, don't know if they ever toured the U.S. They may have, but I don't remember that. But um, yeah, so that's my pick. Cool. That's a good pick to start out with. Carl, what's your pick? He just disappeared. Oh, there we go. Now I'm here. Now he's yeah. back. All right. So if, when I was running through these, probably my favorite 1992 album that I still revisit all the time is Cracker's Self-Titled, which is uh, famous for teenage angst. but. I, I really love that album and the closing track, Dr. Ben- Beatrice, is just fantastic. And it pairs so well with Kerosene Hat. And I don't know if people really remember Cracker as an album band other than the hit singles, but I just always come back to that album. Interesting. Yeah, I think I know Kerosene Hat better than but that, that record. One, that one had the big big hit low and yeah. low, low was on kerosene hat but teenage yeah. tanks low and um, euro what i need now was a huge radio play up here on oh, teenage, yeah but the whole album's well written and the, gar- the guitar's playing good and i mean cracker's still doing shows and making albums and it's a band i really like and that's an album i just keep coming back to from 92 um phil What's an album that you keep coming back to from 1992 that maybe people didn't know at the time? Well, all right. So 92 for me, at least for me, it was very interesting because it was definitely a mesh of of what was what was big and mainstream prior to 92 and what became big and mainstream after 92. And uh Two two albums immediately came to mind that kind of that were kind of a bridge, um, but I'll mention I'll mention one of them because it is vastly underrated, and that is Warren's "Dog Eat Dog." Um, I have this strange theory in regards to hair metal acts. Um, their third albums tend to be the ones where they decide to actually put some thought into what they're creating 
and it's not all you know sex drugs and rock and roll so they're they're talking about other things and that's what really got got to me and the re the reason why it's kind of a bridge is because there's when alternative well alternative was breaking the subject matter was all just anti-sex drugs and rock and roll and uh having having a hair metal band like warren almost embracing that it, i found really really interesting and i, I think that's a good example of a record where um i don't think they sound grungy they just sound creative for the yeah, first they, time they, <laughs> yeah. They 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 embrace more grunge sounds later in the decade, but yeah. um sounds like yeah. April twenty thirty one and yeah Andy Warhol's right and it's just like this is warrant okay I mean it's just it yeah no exactly like and then and and you mix that with songs like the single Machine Gun <laughs> and and a, an excellent song The Hole in My Wall. Mm-hmm. Um, which is void, which is basically about voyeurism. Um, <laughs> but yeah, is that that the album that famously Janie Lane said he went to the label yes. president? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they used to have his album cover on the wall behind the secretary. And when he went back, they had Allison Chains Dirt artwork. Exactly. Yep, that is exactly. correct. <laughs> and that was, I mean, no matter what else you want to say about Warrant, that is a great anecdote. I mean, that's a top ten anecdote of that era. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 the saddest part is, out of the three albums to date, at, at that point, they had just given the label their best record, and like after after the first single, they they're just like, yeah, let's just push Allison Chain some more. <laughs> Eric. You, okay, you we're just chiming in. So, what, what do you got? Yeah, get what it, get out of the way. Ah, I was <laughs> going to bring that up too. Uh, four non blondes, bigger, better, faster, more. I think this is the epitome of an album that people heard the single. A lot of people hated the single. Nobody listened to the album. It's a good album, and Linda Perry is just did wonders on that. I, we could talk a lot about this later in the year, but um, I, I think that there was definitely a, a lot of misogyny towards this band that is a big part of why they have largely been written out of the um, the history books about alternative and grunge, especially you know with this record coming out in 92 and having a massive hit that was, maybe we can call it cheesy, but it's no cheesier than any number of then current singles talking about the state of the world. So I want to challenge everyone in the next year, listen to that album just once, just put the full album on once. Maybe Don't worry it'll, about the single, it'll play weird. the album. <laughs> Maybe it'll come up in a poll. Maybe somebody will pick it for their, uh, for their monthly pick. Who knows? Or for we the yearly see. pick. We'll see. We shall see. There are a couple of songs that are exactly what you fear they would be, and then there are a couple of songs that are the really good band that people never got to hear. Well, additionally, Linda Perry's voice. I mean, she had this great like blues rock voice that maybe got lost in the pop shuffle, but I don't I can't think of anybody else that had a voice like that at 
this time. Maybe Danzig did. With uh, all the time. That's all. I but you know that yeah. that great blues bass voice. Gotcha. That people used to mistake for Ann Wilson of Heart and Getty Lee of Rush. And when my music store days, I would have people coming in thinking it was both of those artists and not realizing <laughs> it was a new band <laughs> with a different female singer. Yeah, you got also, that new Rush album. <laughs> also, a band that was one album and done. Oh yeah, I was going to ask, but uh, that's right. Um, Ian, what is Hello. your pick? Well, I've got I've got a whole list here, but uh, I, I got to go with this one. This is one of my all time favorite albums, released in 1992. Uh, Frontline Assembly, Tactical Neural Implant. So it is a very well regarded industrial album, and that tends to make a lot of. Uh, best of lists for for the genre and even the the single mind phaser for songs um i I think uh one i saw like the top 101 songs it was number six so uh it's an album that's always in rotation for me i mean it's back in the day when albums were only like eight songs in 40 minutes but it's uh it's quality not quantity excellent joe Royland, what is your pick God, there's so many choices, so it's hard to narrow it down to one. But if I had to pick one, I'm going to go with Dada's Puzzle. Uh, that was an album from the minute I heard it, like the cassette just lived in my car. Uh, the CD finds its way into my CD player at least once every year since it came out. Uh, I just It had one minor hit with uh, Disneyland, but the whole album is absolutely killer. And they're a great band to see live still, you know. A band we have talked about mm-hmm. on this podcast. Yep. And uh, also a lot of 92 albums uh, that you can check out by going to digmeoutpodcast.com and just put in 1992. You'll find them all. Jeff, <laughs> what's your pick for an album you think that uh, folks might have missed back in 92? Well, if they missed it in 92, I hope they, came, they went back to it like I did and found it. And that's the Jayhawks Hollywood Town Hall. Mm-hmm. And that was just if you were you know 14 like me and relied on mtv and, and college radio to get you your songs you it's just it, it wasn't coming up and even though they they were on a separate parallel track from what you know alternative rock was doing um but they also popped in 1992 and it just took a while at least speaking for me and it's the hard thing to know like what did you know what did people miss uh and I don't know because they weren't on MTV or in Rolling Stone much back then. Um, but that's their, I think that's a great album. I agree with you. I, that was a band that I didn't get into them until the next record. Uh, and which is Tomorrow the Green Grass because of the single Blue, which got like enough hmm. college radio play that I was like, oh, what is this? And then went backwards and discovered that album and and uh their first record uh hell we have circled back to the beginning of our introductions yeah i wanted to second that uh cracker album that's one where i know and love every song but um i was looking at I, for, I was gonna say it also has the best hidden song on any album ever with euro trash girl is track that's 69 hat. <laughs> that hat. Uh, oh is it hat. yeah oh okay yeah. Um, I mean, they're both great albums, but um, oh, oh, that that is right. That is on Kerosene. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's all good. Cracker forgives you. 
But um, <laughs> I was looking at uh, what albums came out in 92, and um, 92 is um, it's the year I walked in as a 12-year-old and walked out as a 13-year-old. So there's sort of two 92s for me. There's the good 1992 that I've come back to later as, you know, a mature music fan. And there's, you know, the nostalgic 1992 of music I like as a 13-year-old I cannot necessarily endorse but love anyway. I'm going to go with that. And I'm going to give a shout out to America's Least Wanted by Ugly Kid Joe, <laughs> who um, most people know for uh, their single. Everything you know, about you. Yeah, which as a 12 or 13 year old was exactly what I wanted. Guns N' Roses and Nirvana were the same thing to me. I just wanted like snotty, sarcastic, but still kind of G rated, you know hatred or whatever and then the other single from this was cats in the cradle their cover which isn't really good at all but um a lot of the stuff on here was just exactly what a 13 year old burgeoning metal fan um oh yeah uh with uh neighbor neighbor yeah neighbor was the goddamn single, devil like, um, yeah neighbor was really they were i think they were trying to lean into the everything about you image and kind of um just double down on like we're so obnoxious. Look at us well, and yeah. at that age. Uh, the Bloodhound uh, Gang much. before the Bloodhound Gang. Yeah, before the and, Bloodhound. Yeah, if I were five years younger, I would have been real into the Bloodhound Gang when the time came. I just, my- I just wanted to know the label guy that signed off on that album title because you should never release an album title that is the review of the record. So I don't know the name of the label guy, but. This song, this album does end with a, the only song on here that isn't sung by the lead singer, and it's called Mr. Record Man, and it's just a uh, out-of-character song that's basically, hey, label guy, thanks so much for signing us. We're so grateful. So yeah. uh, <laughs> they, uh, thought they owed a little favor. Well, well, I mean... It was, it was the perfect follow-up to a, to a band who released a very snotty novelty song in the, which is basically the last minute that hair metal meant anything to the populace and of course they're going to release neighbor because it's just as snotty but but yeah that there, there was a there was like the non-single tracks on there had some good things going on yeah. in there and then they went way serious on the third album, Menace to Sobriety. Oh, God. The third album I haven't heard. Um, <laughs> this album, I want to say, I think the song in here that I actually really do like is So Damn Cool. I would recommend that one even as an adult. Also, they, they doubled down on everything about you so hard that they re-included everything about you on this album. except In a slight remix. It's yeah. over at the beginning of Julius Sweeney as Pat. It's like the Julius Sweeney mix of everything about you. <laughs> I'm a little okay. bit shocked that nobody covered that song during the pop punk era of like the 2010s. Right. I know that would have been perfect. Oh yeah. If you're yeah. a pop punk band listening to this, it's right there. <laughs> it's it's waiting for you. Uh Jay, co-host of mine, do you have yeah. a pick? What what's the criteria again? Just something that 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 <laughs> I have so many records. I want to make sure I pick the right Let's one. Pick one record. <laughs> That wasn't big at the time that maybe has become more important to you or to just people in general. Something that has, you know, not gotten the didn't get the love at the time, but. You think it does deserves it. Oh, there's so many. I I guess I'll go with uh, Life, Sex and Death, Silent Majority. 
So we reviewed the record. If you want to hear my thoughts on it, you can go search for it. But uh, what I'm thinking about it now is every time it comes on, I'm just always blown away. And, and I'm, I want to go back and listen to it. Um, it what's it wrong? Um, it starts with an F. Um... <laughs> there is a lot of uh, foul language on it. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you like swearing, that's that's the record for you. No. Yeah. Well, they were. Uh, when I think about it, it, it sometimes I hear it and I think they were way ahead of their time. And the other th- times I listen to it and I think this could have only happened in 1992. <laughs> it's just this very like unusual combination of like a band that I think had a glam power pop rock background and then just took this strange turn where the lead singer spent a year or two living as a homeless person and just took on this whole new persona and these warped lyrics and incredible musicianship, incredible hooks, and just a very unique singer um, and overall, you know, package. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. I saw them live once open for lynch mob and uh, yeah, he, he, he totally, um, he lived that character, man. He smelled so bad. And then actually (laughs) I I was at a mighty, mighty Boston show that year at the CMJ music festival in New York city. And he was in the venue walking around. And I mean, if people aren't familiar, you know, he's takes on this character of this homeless guy, but he, I mean, he's all, method acting 100% in. And so if you, if you didn't know about the band or didn't know who he was, um, you know, when they opened for Lynch mob, I saw security try to kind of push him towards the door. And when I was in New York, he was not hanging out with the people. He was up in the balcony in the top corner by himself. Mm -hmm. It was the weirdest dude ever. Um, yeah, it was so, it was so awesome to see them live. It's just one of those things where the the way the whole thing plays out the theater of all of it, and then you just go through that experience and this band comes out and just blows your face off. You can never relive it. <laughs> it's like that happened one time. I can't ever go back and redo that again. And like, I'll just never forget it. So, but I got to say that that particular album, you wouldn't think so, but it is aged incredibly well. Yeah. It yeah. sounds great too. Mm-hmm. Just got reissued on vinyl. Are you serious? Yeah. Music on vinyl, just put it out or it's coming out within the next week or two. Yeah, and if you go to um, on Instagram, Alex. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it, Alex fucking Kane on Instagram. Yeah. Um, he's signing. He's he's uh, he's selling signed copies. He's signing them. He's a guitar player from the band. Oh, I, dang! I follow him on Twitter, not Instagram. Yeah. Cool. Meanwhile, Jay goes shopping. Get over there! Get over there, Jay. <laughs> I'm going to go on mute so you don't hear me typing. <laughs> well, I'm going to pick uh, one record that I didn't discover this band until probably two or three years later and it wasn't because of the band it was because of the band breaking up and forming two new bands and that's uncle tupelo um the 1992 album uh which is titled march 16th to 20th to 20 uh 1992 because that's when it was recorded um i got into wilco and sunvolt i heard box full letters on our college radio station and then I got into Sunvolt when that album came out later, and I learned that they were in bands. It wasn't because of the internet. It was because somebody uh, you know, told me. And uh, I went back, and I got all the records. I have the original 
CDs that were released by Rockville Records back. Uh, they had a special wow. order through our radio or uh, record store in Bowling Green. Um, but th- th- I don't think that this record, even in the Uncle Tupelo catalog, it's as much love as the the. I mean, No Depression spawned an entire movement of music and uh, a magazine, and and it was named after it. And this record is wildly different. They they stopped playing loud guitars, which they had kind of been uh, known as, you know, Dinosaur Jr. meets Johnny Cash. And it's an entirely, almost entirely acoustic record. They do traditional covers of like the Leuven Brothers and a whole bunch of other, what? A, a Leuven Brothers reference on the Dig Me Out podcast. There you go. Yes. Yes. Uh, you're only going to get it. You're only going to get it here, folks. Um, <laughs> it was I mean, it was I heard it in probably 95 or so. And I had never heard anything like it. I mean, I'd never listened to traditional country. I'd never listened to traditionally traditional folk or anything like that. It was completely new to me. And um, it's still to this day is like an important record because I had obviously, you know, living through 92, 93, I heard all these loud bands but hearing a band willingly just completely dismantle their sound and make something so interesting and and it really i mean a lot of the songs even though they're speaking about coal mining and and atomic power had cultural and political relevance in the 90s in terms of their themes so it was a, it was an interesting record to sort of wrap my mind around when I was only 20 something and, and still find it really interesting. Uh, one that I go back to more so than, than the final record, Anodyne, or even sometimes the first record. Cause I'm, I still feel gone is my favorite of all their records. Um, so it's probably my second favorite. So I want to get to some of the comments and we can comment on the comments, not the ones that are happening in the chat right now, but, uh, the, uh, but the uh, comments over on Patreon, uh, some folks couldn't be here with us, and that's okay. Not everybody's able to make it. But Mike Bond said uh, he had a couple picks. He mentioned the Darling Buds, which you did as well, Chip. Um, he mentioned Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, which we've covered. Not that album, but we've, we've covered. Um, Catherine Wheels Ferment, hmm. which is a very good record, their debut. Uh, Cracker Bash. I'm not familiar with Cracker Bash. I'm familiar with Cracker, but not Cracker Bash. And they're Damn self-titled. Cracker Brand, because that Cracker album is self-titled, but people call it Cracker Brand sometimes. That's nope. says Cracker Brand on is part of the artwork. Yeah, yeah. So people like treat that as the title sometimes. That's the first time I've heard that. Nope, Cracker Bash was an actual yeah. band. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, he mentioned Curves Doppelganger, which we reviewed on the show a couple years back. Daisy Great Chainsaws <laughs> Eleven Teen. Oh, I forgot about that one. Mm. Eugenius's Ugalama. I don't know that one. Anybody know that one? Yeah, that was um, Eugenius. Was that Eugene Kelly from? Um, uh, Come back to me. All right. <laughs> I want to say uh, the Vaseline's maybe. Oh, okay. Uh, PJ Harvey's Dry. Pop Will Eat Itself, The Look or the Lifestyle. 
All right, I see Ian throwing the horns on that one. He likes that one. Yeah, I like that. Um, skatening, stupid people shouldn't breed. Well, I agree with the uh, sentiment. I am not familiar with the record. Uh, therapy's nurse. The sugar cubes stick around for joy. Rides going blank again. Morphine's good. One that I will support here, the Tragically Hips Fully Completely, which was the second hip album I got into. Ween's Pure Guava. Mm. So there are some good choices. And he said, I could have easily compiled a 50, top 50 albums. And I, I think, I, I, you know, I toss it around everybody, but I think that this is one of the hardest years of the 90s. Like, so much stuff came out that bands were so creative at this point. There was, there was no, like, limitations. Radio was unsure of what to do with this. MTV was playing everything at some point during the day. And it just seemed like you can pretty much find... 10 20 30 albums that you're like these are great great records i think this uh, was the point where labels were like oh our plans for 1992 have fallen apart what have we got on the roster right. or what have we got yeah. on our farm team labels that we can just yeah. throw out there hey that's cool sounding pop song let's see if that sticks yeah. i really do think that's what was going on additionally with you know nirvana breaking all the rest that suddenly people are like, oh, these are the, st- this, the bands that are getting played on college radio. So a lot of people were starting to tune into their local college stations and college stations in a lot of places are responding by playing into that. And suddenly all the radio college DJs who are like, oh, we're going to do this for fun. Then I'm going to go to law school. Uh, we're suddenly like, oh, this could be a career. So, so Eric, did you happen to, or did anybody happen to take a look at like the actual when stuff was released? Because I did. I mean, I looked it up. I was looking up different albums, um, trying to make my list, and uh, I think you're right. I mean, Nirvana's album came out in '91 in September. Kind of when kid, and I don't know if it was planned that way, but when kids are coming back to school, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at what came out in September of '92, I mean. I, I don't know how I afforded to go to school in September. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, this is just not, this is on my list, right? I have um, Blind Melon, Alice in Chains, Sugar, Nine Inch Nails, Stone Temple Pilots, Ugly Kid Joe, Screaming Trees, Stereo MCs. Um, I'm missing one. Uh, what the band Wax? I mean, there was just it was album after album in September, and that that if it was a marketing plan, it was a really good marketing plan because it was when kids were coming back to school. I think somebody has a really interesting book to write about that period at the major labels when somebody walks in in, you know, Christmas of 1991 and is like, guys, all of the stuff that we had planned for 92, we don't know if it's going to work. So I need Mm -hmm. ideas. I need bands. I need budgets. I need radio promo. The game has changed. Yeah. And a whole bunch of people going, oh, we don't know what to do. And then some smart ass kid in the corner going, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And that's when you start seeing also labels be like, so we need to invest in the sub pop label. We need to get these Athens Mm -hmm. bands. We need to get these Minneapolis bands. Yeah. That that kind of thing happened in the mid 80s with the with the Athens and and Minneapolis bands. But um, yeah, that that whole that whole era of 92 to probably early 94. Record labels, they 
especially the majors, had no idea what to do. So they just t- signed everybody. So you know, you know, far band from from just west of of you know Akron, Ohio gets you know a half a million dollars to make a record. Yeah, I just I, like Geffen Records alone. I want to see what what those board meetings and what those A and R meetings were like. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, another uh, list we got from Gabriel Gutierrez. Uh, he listed some interesting ones that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, Liar by the Jesus Lizard. Fontanelle by Babes in Toyland. Cunning Stunts by the Cows. Pop Tatari by Boredoms. Icing by Cherubs. Stimulation Festival by Paintings. Lysol by the Melvins. And Harsh 70s Reality by the Dead Seas. He said this was also a good year for death metal. Uh, the standouts include the complete, the end complete by Obituary, Last One on Earth by Asphyx, 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 um, Legion by Deicide, 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 uh, Retribution by Malevolent Creation, Onward to Golgotha by Incantation. These are some hard words for me to say on the fly, and the. Is that the ninth? I don't know Roman numerals that well. Nine. The, the ninth fourth, crusade fourth. by Bolt Thrower. No, fourth. Fourth. IV or IX? IV. It's IV. Fourth. Ah, jeez. Can we talk about metal for just a moment? Because yes. Crazy this was year. An, an interesting year for metal. You know, yes. the narrative that we've we've all seen out there over and over is Nirvana killed Guns N' Roses. Not true. No. Metallica anthrax slayer all start to chip away at that metal head market but so does white zombie oh i have comments on this yes bring them (laughs) go for it (laughs) okay because this is the dig me out podcast and we have the better ep rating devil uh la sexa sisto devil music volume one is my definition of a better ep the first five or six tracks are amazing and then it's just sludge from there on out but i can't bring myself to never give it up and i listened to it all the way through even though it's a better ep it was 11 (laughs) or 12 when it came out and it's a perfectly packaged album for an 11 12 or 13 year old it's like that album is marketing genius it's the videos the artwork oh no 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 we, you're you're talking things. about an album that was single-handedly saved by Beavis and Butt. Yes, so that's yeah. true. <laughs> oh, and, so, yeah, I mean, MTV did a lot for that album after we, Beavis and Butt had yes. said, "Yeah, we just, it's cool, man." We just heard a list mm-hmm. that not only had a bunch of metal but had a bunch of noise rock. This is accessible New York noise rock. Yeah, to the point that Rob Zombie was on Headbangers Ball painting the set for several episodes to promote this. And it didn't take off until Beavis and Butthead played Thunder Kiss 65. And I completely agree. This album is a worthy EP. It's too long. There's there's a, you know, half the songs on this are stone classics of the genre and of the image. And that's why to this day, I think Rob Zombie's best bet would be to do like six song solid EPs. Oh yeah. Well, well he 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 kind of he kind of learned in, in in future records to to keep the length down. 
Um, I don't think he's really released a record longer than 40 minutes since. Um, his, his last few records, especially in the last decade, have, have barely pushed 35. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, that one has lots of lengthy, lengthy songs at the, at the back end of it. And yeah, I mean, the, the singles that ultimately came out from it are stellar. And I believe they're all in the front half of the record. So I, yeah. I got two more things to say about metal. And that's these two records, which are kind of the pillars of where progressive metal would go in the 90s. You got King's X by King's X, and you've got Images and Words by Jeremy Theater. And I'd also add Far Beyond Driven by Pantera was released in 92. Wow. Yes. Vulgar Display. Nice. Vulgar, it was Vulgar Display of Power came yeah. out. And I'm I would, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would argue. And, Vulgar and, Display. I'm sorry. And it's just me, maybe. But I would argue this is the best metal album ever. Like, I, this album, like, I, I listen to this front to back. Ooh. All the time, throwing down the gauntlet. That's some yes. heat. Fuck, I'll uh, double devil horns. <laughs> By the way, do you, do you know who's friends with Pantera and hangs out with them? King's X. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. The, the, the best live well. show I ever saw was Pantera. I mean, it was incredible. So if I can uh, set, can I just set? Uh, sorry, a, a little bit of context for 1992 in my memory. Um, I turned 21 in '92, so. You know, I'm older than some of the uh, 12 and 13 year olds from that time period. Um, <laughs> and I'm I was, older still. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, writing for the college paper. But in my memory, I still have a box of cassettes. So I think it was also like the cassette yeah. to CD era. Like mm -hmm. I could still get a cassette for seven ninety nine yeah, as a college student. Was thirteen ninety nine? Yeah. Yeah. So I still have a lot of cassettes from uh, as I was going through. I'm like, I remember having Pantera on cassette and mm -hmm. Nirvana and Doggy Dog and all that stuff on cassette that I eventually replaced with used copies of the CDs for five bucks. But um, yeah, it was such a weird. I think in the '91 episode, I and seeing Nirvana live in '91 changed my life for real. But as I looked at '92, I mean, I still have. Uh, I was pulling out. I was still buying Slick Toxic. Anybody remembers them? Ah. Uh, bad for good with the kid that was on different strokes. <laughs> yep. Tora Tora. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so so I guess I had not completely given up. I hadn't really made that hundred percent switch to alternative yeah. music from, from hair metal because see, I was still see, buying it. Your 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 stance on it was pretty much mirroring mine. Yeah. Cause because I I came of age just moving from top 40 radio to mainstream rock radio right around 1990 when, you know, hair metal was in its all golden diamond glory. And yeah, I did, yeah, I liked it, even though I didn't really identify with the content. I think that's why I, I took to alternatives so well, because it didn't have that, you know, kind of superficial, you know, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, shallow content. Um, so for, yeah. me, for me, 1992, uh, that was the year I was 19 and turned 20. I was a freshman in college and then a sophomore in college at Lake Superior State University, which is way up in the middle of nowhere. And definitely there was the the peer group that we were listening, starting to listen to these new new bands, Nirvana, Soundgarden. 
But additionally, we were still also listening to Motley Crue. We were still listening to Warrant. We were still listening to Rat, still listening to Queensryche. So it wasn't like, you know, that everyone turned in all their hair metal albums. It wasn't like, you know, you showed up at school one day and there was a big bin that was like, put the Motley Crue in there. <laughs> so and Bon, bon Jovi had a big album that year with yeah. Keep the Faith with a yeah. huge power ballad with Better Roses. I, I mean, mm-hmm. that wasn't even my scene and I picked up that scene. Now you see that yeah. one, that one is a great transitional period too, because if you listen to, if you listen to that full record, especially on especially on the back half you're having a, you have a lot of songs that aren't you know better roses and i mean just the first track i believe on that one is just shows a very very different bon jovi mm-hmm. bon jovi is also coming off of the young guns 2 soundtrack which right. was a massive right. hit and definitely leaned more roots rock country is that uh, blaze of glory yeah yep Okay. Um, and, and Richie Sambora had a solo record in 91, which oh, is very, cool. very blues. Um, and John Bon Jovi wrote half of Keep the Faith by himself. And, and he was just, oh, okay. Izzy Stradlin. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm um, <laughs> talking about a big, big hair metal, glam metal record that went kind Love of that bluesy. album. I was real into that album at the time. That uh, I, I remember reading a review that said something like, um, you know, this is a better Keith Richards album than anything Keith Richards has ever done. <laughs> Pretty much yeah, true. Yeah, we discussed that in, in the Discord. Yeah. And since if I was join the Patreon. Yeah, talk about is he straddling with me? And um, since I was 13, my big takeaway from that comment was, oh, okay, I guess that's what Keith Richards is. Like now I have a frame of reference for Keith Richards because I like Izzy Stradlin and can go backwards from there. <laughs> Keith Richards' solo records are a lot like that uh, Izzy, Izzy album. I think I came to this from, um, I think you guys were been the older kids on the bus. I'm gonna, I might need a mullet census later on <laughs> to find out who <laughs> was going on or who at least had a jean jacket with uh, a Metallica uh, ride the lightning patch on it. <laughs> Um, so I was like, I was like avoided metal because like the like the, some of the scary kids were listening to that. It seemed too too de- too devilish for um my Catholic self. So <laughs> Depeche Mode Violator was my favorite album when Nevermind was released. So I was coming into it from mm-hmm. that angle, and um you know go you preaching know, get, to the choir, man. Yeah, like getting into <laughs> Eurasia, you know, like that was that was like New Order learning, you know, oh you know having opinions on the new electronics, you know, album. So, um, so yeah, it was almost, it was like, in a weird way, it was like an easier way to get into temporary rock. I mean, I like classic rock and all that, but like the, the, it didn't, it didn't speak to me as a 12 year old, the glam stuff. And it was too ridiculous and, and too scary, but that's the difference between being 12 and 13 in those ranges than being 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a, uh, as a person who turned 13 in 92, I had, um, kind of an interesting metal story because that was uh, the first opinion I ever developed about music. I entered 92 liking whatever MTV played and I ended 92 liking whatever metal MTV played. And that started off with me just kind of not discriminating. If I was told it was metal, I decided I liked it. But I definitely, um, I, I got into metal at that age less because I heard and liked it and more because 
I liked the idea of being the kind of person that was into metal. I, I was the final suburban teenager ever to get really into metal. Um, <laughs> the band that, I mean, Ugly Kid Joe's where I started, but by the end of the year, um, the band that kind of exemplified what I wanted metal to be and that I kind of had decided was my metal band was Megadeth, who put out Countdown to Extinction that year. Um, I've actually still never listened to the album, but the singles from that were Big Deal, Sneez, a 13-year-old. It was like um, uh, Symphony of Destruction, Foreclosure of a Dream, and Sweating Bullets. Mm. I, I watched the Sweating Bullets video recently, and it's more amazing now than it ever was then. It's one of those things where you can sort of laugh with it or laugh at it, and it works equally well either way. But, like, something about Megadeth seemed like, you know, they weren't corny, like, glam bands, but they weren't too scary, but they were scary enough. Dave Mustaine seemed like he was probably intelligent and thoughtful in the right ways, but could also be, you know, loud and crazy. So I, I think that from, from, from the perspective that only a 13-year-old can have, Megadeth was like the perfect metal band that you know, did all the right things. So the, the interesting yeah. thing about Metal Death, tying it back to, we were just talking about Izzy Stradlin, and obviously his albums riffing against or competing with his former band Guns N' Roses. And we just talked about Keith Richards, who famously people believe that the Rolling Stones are at their best when you have Jagger and, and Richards kind of squaring off against each other. If you think about it, that Megadeth is squaring off against Metallica, yeah. that in this era especially, it's Dave Mustaine having to prove or show that they were wrong for kicking him out of the band and delivering, which in hindsight... doing that, though. Yeah, but in hindsight, probably is the moment where, at least artistically, he puts out a record oh, yeah. that absolutely, hands down, stands ahead above what his former bandmates are doing at that moment. Absolutely, and had a lot of commercial yeah. success with it, too. He had hits. You know, when I saw... Um some kind of monster years later and he's talking about how you know all his life he's just always kind of been competing with metallica and in metallica's shadow i always i, I mean i get that you know certainly as an adult i get that but when i think back to my perspective as a 13 year old i thought you're doing great man you have hit songs you're you're, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. you know i liked him more than i liked metallica but even if i liked metallica more i i i didn't get the impression that dave mustaine had anything to feel bad about and then i turned into an adult Oh no, he he still feels that way to this day. I know. I like and, the idea of 13-year-old Hale trying to pump up Dave Mustaine. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Dave. Hale did not You're know that Dave Mustaine needed pumping up. 13-year-old Hale thought that Dave Mustaine was aspirational. You got okay. it, bud. I know you guys have come to expect <laughs> oh. you guys you guys have come to expect this, I'm sure, but uh... Oh yeah, there's Dave Chip and Dave. Dave. There's Chip and Dave. <laughs> That's awesome. Chip knows everybody. I got. I want to say just so I can put my uh, age into this because I appreciate that everybody's been saying where they were. Ninety two was the year I graduated from high school and started college. So I went from and I went from a graduating class of ninety two people in nineteen ninety two in a small Ohio town to a campus of twenty thousand people at Bowling Green and joining the college radio station and. I remember walking into the college radio station the night that they did like, hey, do you want to join the staff? Come by at like 730 on, on Wednesday and, and meet the staff. And I walked in and the music director was there 
John or Jay knows him or knows the name John Riccardi. And he he looked at me and he goes, so what do you listen to? And I said, oh, you know, I I listen to everything, you know, rock, rap. And he just kind of shook his head. He went, oh, yeah, <laughs> this kid, this kid doesn't know anything. Yeah, I, I had I had somebody at my radio station at the time do that to me, too. Like your favorite band sucks. Well, it wasn't that even was that. He's just like this kid clearly has thimble deep knowledge <laughs> of music. You know, I'm into like Pearl Jam and Crisscross. Yeah, <laughs> that was my. That was basically my. I like the boy. I like Boys to Men and uh, you know Led Zeppelin. I, I didn't. I didn't have anything. So going to that, having that experience in 1992, uh, was. I mean, it was life changing because a lot of these records that I would have never heard if it wasn't for being exposed to it at the radio station, watching MTV. I mean, I honestly, I I was not familiar with REM up until that point. I had maybe heard a single here and there, but Automatic for the People was like the first time I went, oh, okay, I I I see that this is like very interesting and got it. Like when yeah. I heard pop song 89 or something else before that, I was like, uh, it's just weird, <laughs> kind of weird. I, I don't want to leave the metal topic without mentioning um, the Godfathers of Metal released probably their last great album, Dehumanizer, in 1992, which probably nobody remembers. <laughs> At Sabbath. the time, it was like, yeah, so Sabbath releases that record. I think it was not the right time. Like nobody cared about. A Sabbath reunion with Ronnie James Dio in 1992, and it didn't get do well. But there's some great stuff on there, and it picks right up where they left off in the early 80s with him. Um, Are you? And, you know, I've got a story. Um, give so, it to me. So at the Lynch Mob Life, Sex, and Death show, Black Sabbath was supposed to be in town the next night, playing at um, uh, this this auditorium, Veterans Memorial Auditorium, mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm, I, I was in college. I had a photo pass. I'm taking pictures of lynch mob and I turn over in, um, obviously this is a very, uh, um, targeted people. I'm talking to Tim and Jay, um, in Columbus. <laughs> so, well, the Newport music hall has, a, has like a little side door, you know, that's kind of like you, the, the, the public can't get to it. It's a side door out to the parking lot. And, um, I look over there and Ronnie James Dio is watching lynch mob. And so I know the bouncer and I go over to the bouncer. I'm like, Hey, can I, can I go talk to Ron James Dio really quick? And, um, before cell phones, uh, I had a camera. The, the bouncer's like, uh, no, that's why I'm here. Jackass. No, no. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I knew him. I knew that guy too. So uh, okay. um, of course Jim, <laughs> of course you did. So I got my picture with Ronnie James Dio and I'm like, Hey Ronnie, listen, I write for the college paper, you know, which is super important in Columbus. So can I interview you tomorrow? And he actually gave me his manager's phone number and I called and what ended up happening is they did not sell enough tickets for the auditorium. And so mm. they moved it to the Newport and they, you know, they advertised it as like black Sabbath plays a special, special small club show. It, yeah. It's because they did not sell enough tickets. Um, yeah. But I did not get the interview because they ended up going to the radio station to promote the show. But Ronnie left me two tickets and two after show passes. So after the show, I get to go backstage and um, I walk by Tony Iommi and, you know, this is 1992 chip and, and, who's now into Nirvana and Soundgarden. And I, I just look at him, I'm super nervous. And I'm like, 
Tony, um, welcome back. Like, you know, welcome back. Black Sabbath is back, you know? And right. he just looked at me and goes, here, here comes my British accent. We were never gone. And then he just walked away. And I'm like, <laughs> and I don't, th- I don't think he was mad that I said it, but he was yeah. like, basically, we never went away. Uh, right. you, you might be into other stuff now, but we were never gone. But um, that show was so we were never gone. loud. Yeah. That show was so loud. The, the um, was it TV, TVI? TV, TV crimes. Crimes, yep. I mean, the bass, like the, I just remember the whole place just shaking. It was so loud in that venue. It was too small of a venue for them to be playing, which was awesome. It yeah. seemed like for bands of that ilk, like Maiden, Priest, uh, I don't know who else you want to mention, but the 90s seemed like a dead zone for a lot of those bands. I'm telling you, that's a great round table. You got yeah. all, these, all these arena bands coming out of the 80s and 70s. The, I mean, they were still selling tickets, but like all bad company changed singers, right? Like Brian Howe was singing for them in the eight in the nineties and foreigner had some changes going on and all these bands who had come from arenas in the nineties. I think a lot of them still got to play arenas, but they were definitely not the arena rock heroes. They had been in the eighties and seventies. They were having to fight against the sound gardens and Nirvana's the Allison chains, the up and coming kids. Now they had to compete for those arena spots now. And I think, um, I think you're right. And I think that the, maybe the lining is that the or silver lining for them is that they went and played arenas in Japan, Southeast Asia, oh, yeah. they, and they went to South America, especially. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> a lot of those, a lot of those arena rock bands and uh, especially bad company, which had a kind of a minor comeback in 1990 by 92, they were gone again. And uh well, they also it didn't help that they also kind of went almost adult contemporary as well. But it, that that was an interesting time because yeah, they could still sell tickets to shows, but they were all still actively recording as well. So that that was an interesting dichotomy because it you're you're having these bands with a great catalog trying desperately to add to it, but they're like, no, I want to hear Nirvana. I think additionally, you have a whole lot of uh, 80s punk bands that are all of a sudden finding a new new opportunity because these are the bands that the the, uh, alternative bands are citing. I mean, you've got Suicidal Tendencies coming out this year with uh, Art of Rebellion, which is a great record. And especially you've got the Return of Social Distortion, who are going to become super important later in the decade. and Eric, like those bands, those like these bands, they were like four or five, six albums into their career. Oh yeah. But, was, but like in '92, when it started to become the the whole changing tides, like I don't think I I, I knew suicidal tendencies and I knew um, social distortion, but to a lot of people, they were new bands, right? And this they were also, just getting that first exposure. This is also the year that you know Rollins' band breaks through, and this is the year that. Danzig, right. the band breaks through. Yeah, and only in '92 yeah. could 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 an act like Rollins' band actually break through to a main to the mainstream. Hmm. I I do want to mention uh, we had a couple other people who made comments. We can talk about these records that get brought up. Some of them have already been mentioned, but I want to mention uh, Kyle Bittner brought up the hips fully, completely, and REM's automatic for the people, along with Sugar's Copper Blue, which we've talked about on this show. Um, the single soundtrack, 
Soul Asylum, Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, huge record for them. I mean, clearly the biggest of their career uh, with Runaway Train and um, somebody shove. to shove. Exactly. Uh, Alice in Chains, White Zombie, Rage Against the Machines debut album came out in 1992. Body Count. <laughs> which for whatever the quality of the music was they got attention oh, yeah. they, they definitely got attention for, uh, blind... for the wrong reasons though I sure mean... sure uh there's oh, but there are always bands that are getting attention for the wrong reason of every uh era right and, uh... but but body count body count is unique because that record pretty much i mean yeah it it had some mtv play and it and it was doing moderately well for a rapper fronting a metal band in 1992, but <clears throat> it only sold because the song Cop Killer got pulled from the record. So right, everyone right. went and bought it. While and politicians talked about it. And you yeah. have the president of the United States talking about you yeah. two in this era and talking about Cop Killer. Yeah. That's huge. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, also mentioned uh, Blind Melon uh, and thanked the DMO union for uh, suggesting albums or, or bringing up albums like Saigon Kicks, uh, The Lizard, and Life, Sex, and Death, which we talked about earlier. And then Richard Waterman, Rich, he mentioned uh, Animal Bag, um, Archangels, which you've covered, The Bad Companies, Here Comes Trouble, which I think somebody just talked about that, Bangalore Choirs on Target. I am not familiar with that record. Oh, look at Chip got it right there. <laughs> how, did, how did he Air find it so fast? On the cover art alone. How is that possible so quick? Uh, the I Black Crows, Southern Harmony, Buffalo Tom's Let Me Come Over, which uh, that's the album I think I discovered them on, which was because of Taillights Fade. Same. Um, Chainsaw Kittens flipped out in singapore we talked to we talked to many members of that band many years ago mm -hmm. uh deaf leopards adrenalize is that is that the last like deaf leopards always been a band i mean they've been together but is that the last like radio really big push for them yeah see they were they were a band that kind of survived at least at the early couple their early couple years of the 90s because they were the so single? like loved by MTV. Yeah. What was the single? Um, Anybody remember? There were Let's many singles. Rocked. Uh, yeah. Let's get rocked. Um, make love like a man. Have you ever needed somebody? And it's so bad tonight. Uh, yes. Like four or five about that album. Stand up, kick love into motion. Into motion. That's the yep. other one. I think I still know every word to Let's Get Rocked from having been twelve at the time. <laughs> I mean, you're twelve and you want to you want to hear a song. Let's get rocked is the song. You yeah. want to throw your fist in the air for. I the mean, that's ultimate twelve-year-old like revenge against your parents fantasy kind of. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, extremes, three sides, failures, comfort. Mm -hmm. uh, this was one that uh, we were supposed to absolutely bring up because uh, Scott Holgram wasn't able to make it. Faith No More's Angel Dust. Great album. Oh yeah. When I was uh, looking at a list in ninety. Two albums uh, before this, and just you know, jotting down stuff I might want to mention that stood out to me as like, I, I don't know what to say except it's just amazing. It's definitely the best album they've done. 
And they, I, so that was like the welcome back to Ohio state concert. I mean, I, I know it was a regular tour, but that was the first week of college. 92 was faith no more and helmet who were coming off, you know, getting signed to the million dollar contract and uh, the unsung record, which is, or a meantime record, which is, um, that was a hard sell. I, I don't, they, that was, I, they conned somebody out of some money there, I think. Cause that's not uh, palatable to the masses. I don't think it's a great record. I mean, I, I, it's my favorite. Oh, no. record. You know who was palatable? Unsung. To? I think that, Unsung was the was the track that made that record. That's yes, the only palatable. thing that could have sold that record. And yeah. you know what though? Mm-hmm. The the football players that I went to high school with loved that song, even though they were not into alternative music. Like that was made for lifting and and for, <laughs> oh, for yeah. like you know what I mean. Like and those dudes were all like wearing shorts and and like they didn't look alternative. They all had short hair and they just looked like dudes who were like kind of. They look like the guys in helmet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Never being considered an alternative. Like uh, on on MTV, at least they'd be you know in headbangers ball territory. They would never be in like 120 minutes territory. Right. That's something we should talk about. Is that this is also I believe the year that suddenly MTV goes. Oh, we need to start Alternative Nation. That yeah. people are actually yeah. watching this weird show we put on Sunday nights in the dead zone. Yeah, it's also so, the year that like and you know MTV and the whole industry starts kind of, I mean, related to what you were just saying, shifting any metal band that they can into being marketed and perceived as alternative. I think that um, you know, when I was you know first learning all of these bands in '92. I would watch like Headbangers Ball and they'd have like Nirvana or, you know, I'll bet Pearl Jam was on there, stuff like that. Right. I, uh... But that, that, how that's, that's the fall of 91 where they're like, okay. oh my God, I don't know how to promote this. Right. And so the closest thing that they had, if they, if they couldn't get on 120 minutes, they got on Headbangers Ball. Yeah. And, right. and, and I mean, now keep in mind that, you know, just a year prior, you didn't have a whole lot of loud guitar on 120 minutes. No. Um, yeah, if anybody looked at the Discord, I posted the MTV set list for their top 20 videos of 1991 from 120 minutes. Yeah, I saw and If that, you look yeah. at that, you'll see that it, of course, ends with Nirvana, but you'll see it's like half of these weird British bands that were college rock yeah. and yeah. the other half of what we think mm-hmm. of now as alternative of that era. Yeah. yeah, there's this whole sort of aborted version of alternative rock that just kind of didn't survive the Nirvana ship. Yeah. Tim, I, I, I don't know. Oh, go ahead, Chip. I was going to say, Tim, I don't know if somebody mentioned, but the other one that we haven't talked about yet. Oh, well, yes. The Check your head. Voice. Voice. Check your head. Yeah. That like, might be my favorite album of 92. Yeah. I mean, that's that was a such a a, a shaking of the ground of I mean, they completely reinvented themselves with that record, which they had done the previous record, and crossed over. They were playing their own instruments. Yeah. Which is what they did originally, though, because they were originally a hardcore punk band. Yeah. Right. Oh, you got suckered into buying that that, uh, same old bullshit EP, too? I I own zero Beastie Boys, because not my thing. But I bought bought that EP, and, and... I got to go back and listen to it because, you know, I bought it's it because I was a Beastie Boys fan and it was like, I want to hear them as a punk rock fan, band and it was awful. No, yes. all, all my Misfits fanatic friends are like, they open for the Misfits. I got to, you got to hear this. And I was like, <laughs> uh, no. I've been on real Beastie Boys kick lately and Check Your Head to me is absolutely the pinnacle, you know, 
every other album to me is just, you know, getting better and better until Check Your Head and then getting slightly worse after Check Your Head. Um, <laughs> that to me is just where everything that makes the BC Boys matter converts. You muted yourself, Pale. <laughs> oh, crap. That's right. It was just for two seconds. But I agree with you. I mean, that that was an album that in terms of crossover and between various sectors or or you know everybody listened to that record that's what made that such an interesting record because it was it just touched on so many different audiences it's so weird sorry no it's uh go ahead i was just gonna say it's so weird because like they were clearly in this weird space where they kind of had rock cred and rap cred at the same time and were kind of marketed to both, which for the time was really, really uncommon. But just from being a teenager at the time, my memory is that um, they seemed to be marketed primarily to like the alternative kids. Um, as much as they were they were doing oh, rap yeah. music, they, they, like, I was listening to their follow-up album today, it had Q-Tip on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think Bismarcky, and that's it for like guest appearances. Like they were clearly artistically in the rap world but the industry absolutely decided that bc boys were for rock fans regardless of what they sounded like which you so know. rap is also an interesting moment here because we're talking about a place where you have the pop rap of Chris cross and mc hammer and vanilla ice and then on the other side, you've got, and we just talked about body count, but the other side, you've got De La Soul, you've got uh, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, you've got all of these hip hop bands. Schnickens, Das Effects, Me For Me, Black Sheep. Spearhead. I yeah. mean, we're missing, mm. we're missing the biggest album of 1992, which is The Chronic. By and Dr. Then, Dre. Then, right. then the Pearl Jam 10 equivalent of it with Ice Cube's The Predator. I mean, Questlove named the Chronic one of the five biggest moments in hip hop history. Absolutely, and I'd say it's more important than Nevermind in 2022, where you look where pop music is. I agree. I mean, mm-hmm. and and he did it with live drums and live bass to get well, that sound that, on that album. That punk, which which is really what evolved into alternative, has always been crossed over with hip hop in a way that a lot of people don't know or acknowledge. You go back to like. <laughs> African Bombada, you know, he's sampling like craft work and yeah, know, some of the first punk records or some of the first rap records by white white artists were people like Captain Sensible from The Damned, Dee Dee Ramone from The Ramones, <laughs> you know, The Clash, you know, Debbie Harry and Blondie. We're we're talking coming out of this this, you know, we just talked New about York. the Beastie Boys. You know, uh, they're on, you know, Deaf American Records which is you know, LL Cool J, but it's also Slayer and Danzig. You know, it's there's this crossover that's going on that also has been kind of forgotten about because what happens is gangster rap comes in and suddenly it's a different ball game. It's a clip where um, it, it came out recently. Dave Grohl was talking to Pharrell about his influence as a drummer. And he tells a story about how Tony Thompson from Chic was at a barbecue of like, at a barbecue of his, which is just amazing in and of itself. <laughs> and he says to, he goes up to Tony and says, you don't know, you know, man, I've taken so much stuff from you. And Tony said, I know, I know. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's the, 
the at the start of team you know smells like team yeah. spirit is from the gap band um you've got uh you know and 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 Grohl himself says it was he's rolling in from disco so you know all this stuff it's just in the same way that disco didn't really die there was you know the disco the disco demolition night wasn't really didn't really actually kill off disco just all these things that were like you know i can't help but think wonder to what extent to like you know hardcore and punk and disco to the extent they got pushed underground across some paths i think a lot of that is the new york connection i think you know someone mentioned yeah. that before. i think that you know in you know early 80s new york you know that's when the bc moys form and also you know debbie harry is working rap into a blondie song david Byrne is working into a talking head song and that's not a coincidence these were people that were in new york and were not at all part of the burgeoning rap scene but were you know occasionally around it and aware of it when a lot of people weren't yet and intrigued by it i think that um with Talking Heads in particular, there's only that one song, Cross-Eyed and Painless, where they sort of sneak in a rap part, which is actually, a lot of people think of Rapture by Blondie as the first time a rock band incorporated rap. Cross-Eyed and Painless by Talking Heads beat it by like a week or something. Well, you see, Rapture was the first time it was one. popular. Right, yeah. It was the first Rapture time it became popular. People heard a rock band do it. Um, Talking Heads is the first time a rock band did it. But yeah, like like all, all these like Talking Heads were influenced a lot by other elements of like hip hop and disco and funk. That was all kind of going into their music. And like it's it's all, you know, it's it's very intentional. And, and BC Boys are the same thing. These are punk kids that were in New York at the right time and were and just realized rap was really cool and started messing around with it more as a joke than anything, and then just ended up being amazing. Well. Well, the, in, in, in relation to that, how um, that was an era where artists of a certain genre were not just influenced by other by their peers in that genre. So, I mean, you had you had Run DMC, who who arguably were the first rap act to really break through to a mainstream audience on a regular basis. All of their songs were based on rock riffs. Yeah, Raising Hell is a rock record. In my yeah, opinion. Raising Hell is just as yeah. much of a rock record that it is a, a hip-hop record. That's what and... he's doing, I feel like. I feel like he's kind of the nexus there. But you, yeah. get, you get a whole bunch of bands here who are, who are blowing up that are riffing on a lot of Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah. Whether it's Fishbone or the Red Hot Chili Peppers or it's the multiple samples by, you know, um, Public Enemy or whoever. Yeah. That, that are, I mean, this is where they're coming from. There's one about- other R&B inspired album I need to bring up, or Bucks is going to reprimand us, <laughs> that Congregation came out by Afghan Wigs in 1992. Oh, yeah. And when I got into Afghan Wigs as an adult, because I had a, my late friend Gary got me into Afghan Wigs, and cheesy enough, I thought the cover of Temp- The Temple was amazing, and that was my gateway afghan wigs as an adult and i just love congregation and i i just love i mean they're clearly a rock band but i think they're really an r&b band too and and i mean just love love the afghan wigs came to them later in life but congregation was as good of a start as any to get into that band and uh had to bring them up before we ended that's uh that's a band that I, like i mentioned with 
Uncle Tupelo. I didn't get into them until Black Love. And I went backwards and discovered Congregation and and Gentlemen and Up In It in reverse. Uh, Another band I want to mention that hasn't come up that also, uh, I think Jay has the same experience. I didn't get into this band until the end of the 90s, which was the Manic Street Preachers. And this is the year that Generation Terrorists come out, which I still think is one of the most insane uh, attempts of a debut album, which they wanted to sell uh something like 20 million copies and then break up yeah and, uh just a incredible lifetime of uh of accomplishments and chaos and stuff that's gone around in that band um definitely worthy of the books that i've read about them and uh but generation terrorists at this it sounds completely of the time and completely out of time at the same time because they're channeling <laughs> Guns N' Roses and Public Enemy yep. and The Clash and all these things. And the production sounds insanely out of time with 1992. It's overly reverbed and the guitar, everything is overly reverbed. Um, Did Tim Palmer mix it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, I want to. Uh, there were a couple other albums that uh, Richard Waterman mentioned that I wanted to bring up that I think that are, are relevant to this year. The Lemonheads. It's a shame about Ray. An album. Uh, I don't. I think this has come up, but Stone Temple Pilots core. We haven't really dug into that. Core. Mm-hmm. That did come out in '92. Yeah. Yep. Um, the Sunday's Blind. Um, Love it. What else did he have here? I'm just thinking of all the poor people that uh, probably saw the title. have never listened to this podcast before, saw albums of 1992 and expected us to spend a half an hour at least on core. And we're like, oh, yeah, core came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it really didn't hit it, until 93. Really? Well, let's talk about yeah. Generation Terrorists. <laughs> yeah. Live's Mental Jewelry. Um, L7's Bricks Are Heavy. Oh, yeah. And Caius's Blues for the Red Sun. Those are a couple of other ones that mm-hmm. I wanted to. Uh, oh, Grunt yeah. Trucks Push. Um, that just got reissued on vinyl too yes and um, of course we can't forget Faster Pussycats whipped yeah out. Uh, that was actually on my list <laughs> Chip I'm expecting you to whip that out immediately either on cassette or CD I don't have do it, it, do it I don't do have it, do it, it, it. ready but I, I can yeah, get it before we're done way over there so. <laughs> yeah it's in the other room I also just wanted to throw in since we uh, cracked the seal a little bit on rap I just wanted to quickly mention two songs that came out that year that I think are real standouts that are underrated. Um, there's Don't Sweat the Technique by um, Eric B. Oh, Rakim. I love that song. Yes. That's a, you know, Rakim, of course, is acclaimed that song and that album, I think, are not considered um, highlights, but the second verse of that song is my favorite rap verse ever. And then I also wanted to mention um, Pete Rock and CL Smooth's They Reminisce Over You from Mecca and the Soul Brother, which I think is um, for 1992, by far the most emotional depth that a rap song had ever shown. It still makes me cry when I listen to it. And this is from a genre that people were still writing off at the time. So I just kind of wanted to throw those in my consciousness. We're gonna, if we're going to talk rap too, I want to throw in the far side as well. Yes, yeah. Pretend oh, I, find, I found Whip. And I have no idea when That's... I met them, but it's an autographed copy of Whip. Nice. So I'm going to segue from from whipped to which seattle band is uh has a song dedicated to the lead singer on whipped 
Mother love bone. I caused a big stir by showing this in the Discord. So (laughs) why was it a big stir? Two albums because it was recorded in 1990. Yes, but there was two albums that from uh, 90 and 91 that went platinum and sold huge that were reissued in 90, 92 and people discovered. And one of them is Temple of Your Dog, which has been talked about. The other is this two CD Mother Love Bone set. Yeah. Yep. um, Which I remember, I think it was the end of the year, Kurt, or it's either the end of 92 or the beginning of 93, Kurt Loder on MTV News talking about how Pearl Jam members played on four platinum selling records that year. Pearl Jam's 10, the single soundtrack, Temple of the Dog, and Mother Love Bone. Oh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, more people listen to that album in 92 than they did in Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. When Apple well, came Apple, out or '89, Apple, Apple didn't get out. a big wide release because yeah. it came out. You know, yeah. well, that's the shiny piece. Yes, yeah. But, uh, like I bought that when that first came out because I thought it looked cool, and there was a song called "Capricorn Sister," and I'm a Capricorn. Birthday nice. was yesterday, so <laughs> it was just like, hey, this looks cool. I'll buy it, and oh. like you know, I dug it. So yeah, the point is that that the other part of '92 is that suddenly not only were all of these records breaking. But people were going back to find stuff. This is where Red Hat right. Chili Peppers get a best of album released yeah. to cash in on the popularity of. Blood oh, yeah, Sugar, that's Sex right. Out in LA. Right. Uh, I, I need to mention uh, an, an artist that I think in the 90s I was not focused on in the, in the way that I was in the 80s. So I've had to go back and sort of revisit a lot of these albums. But Prince put out. Oh, the love the symbol, symbol album, in 1992, album, yeah. which going back now is just unbelievably packed with stuff. You got My yeah. Name is Prince, uh, Sexy MF, yeah. uh, Seven, Damn You. I mean, Sunday I, Papers is just wildly weird. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's, I think an underrated album because I think Prince was already kind of falling off at the time. Like, I think. Um, just in terms of cultural relevance, I feel like this yes. is the beginning of the end. It was the, well, you see, it was the first time he fully embraced rap in his music. Yeah. yeah. So, that Chip, where's your picture with Prince? Not only did I never meet Prince, I never saw Prince live, which is a regret. Neither yeah, okay. I. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I met Prince. Nice. Hey, I'm Explain. not a Prince fan. I stood there thinking to myself, all of my Prince maniac friends would be dying and I'm here doing my job. <laughs> I did security at Target Center in Minneapolis for like a year in 2002. He came to see Beyonce. I never talked to him. I never shook his hand or anything. I didn't even remember. Oh, he, wouldn't, I, he wouldn't have done either with Oh, I, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that going in. I dealt with his chauffeur who was a super nice guy. But because I was a professional and I just kind of nodded and, and I you know, gave him the information. And then a little bit later on, I worked with a guy who had been part of a security team. And he was like, yeah, he did that all the time. And as long he was fine as long as you didn't start bothering him or whatever. And he said, this, this guy I worked with said, oh, yeah, he was super cool to us as the security team. So there's, there's sort of a famous Columbus story that he stopped uh, at an all night donut shop on campus, Buckeye Donuts, mm-hmm. and got out of his limo and ran in and, and got a, a donut um, at some point in his career. <laughs> yes. Yes, that, sure. I've heard that story. <laughs> Here's my um, time to, to I, I'm flexing the ticket stub now. Everybody else flexing nice. the CDs, but I've got my prints. <laughs> nice. 
it was it was very nice i'm gonna throw it out there any albums we've covered a lot of records um anything that we haven't brought up i one that i'm surprised it is not an album it's an ep and i ian yeah, I'm, it's on my list. So, say it. Uh, nine, inch, nine inch nails broken. Nine inch nails broken, especially with the metal, because fuck you guys. He won the Grammy for best metal performance. Why <laughs> 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 are you guys talking metal? And here I am biting my tongue. To that, that's a, one, I have one comment on broken. I was broken, leaving it for Ian to bring up. <laughs> broken, broken is sounds absolutely amazing on good headphones or a good oh, yeah, stereo oh, system yeah. there's nothing that sounds like it and if it's yeah, on yeah. a crap system it sounds just like noise I, well actually in the cd <laughs> it has the warning do not play on mono device it's actually it's in the liner notes but that, so that, I, that's I, one of the reasons why i, so I, I keep I, coming back to broken and on my on my good stereo system there's nothing like putting that album on on that ep yeah. on and so, yeah. Allison Chain came out with Sap, so you had two big yep. that year. So the, and the Nine Inch Nails tip with the, the being on the metal category—that's just a, yet another example of how the, the metal genre no was really being pushed in good yeah. ways uh, in this this era, because uh, you know it for so long been in this the small box of these are the metal bands, but alternative especially with. You know, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails, White Zombie, all of that falls under metal, but it's all pushing the boundaries. Well, you also mm-hmm. had uh, nominated that your uh, ministry with uh, New World Order, NWO yep. from uh, Psalm yep. 69, the way to succeed and the way to suck eggs. So, I mean, in that metal category, I mean, there's two industrial bands that, that began the crossover of that mm-hmm. genre and would also change it. I mean, if you look at other industrial albums from that year, you've got Skinny Puppy with Last Rites, phenomenal album. Money from KMFDM, Decrypts with One, which started their uh, influence with guitar and metal, but I, I, and even like it, it, it's still rooted in a lot of the old school, school electro-industrial, but then you have Ministry of Spawn 69, then Nine Snails, and that changed the, the genre, and that's a whole other discussion for another podcast that i can go into for an hour <laughs> but yeah uh, i mean broke it broken and and the fixed ep which was remix uh ep released released later in 92 and that's probably the most industrial uh release trent reznor has released <laughs> and yeah. that was uh mm-hmm. that was uh photos and um and coil doing a lot of the remixes and, and, and heavy lifting for that remix ep <laughs> I wanted to get a plug-in for uh, Sonic Youth's Dirty, too. Um, yeah, that's just, I think that's the best entry point, too, for people who are, um, have heard of them or just have a vague sense of them. I think that's the place to start more so than, I mean, I think Daydream Nation's a little bit more of a critical pick, but I don't, well, it's not the Dirty, best way to Dirty get in. Dirty had more accessible songs. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And if, you know, if, or if people only heard them then, like, where are you going to get in with the later period? Maybe it's Murray Street, but I think Dirty's a, is the best place to start. And it's also, you know, they had already, they had already signed with a major label in 1990. They were one of the, you know, the sort of, they weren't obviously on SST, but like those types, types of bands that were percolating around the underground in the 80s, the, times they were starting to get signed to the majors. They got signed in 1990. And Goo, I think, was a commercial disappointment from where, the record company stood but um that dirty is is my favorite and, and it's like 
easily a top 10 for the decade for me. I think Goo was probably another one that people went back yep. and picked up. Yeah. So well, this, well, well the, the cool thing single did make some noise, but yeah, the thing that's goo is the, you know, I got, you know, I, I got one of those when they came out with the deluxe edition and they give the demos. I like the demos off goo more much like half of the songs. I, I listen to the demos now rather than the original tracks. It's almost like mm-hmm. just, you know, they just didn't have the right approach going in. But so one that was mentioned, but I think does not get enough mm. love is Screaming Trees, Screaming Trees, Sweet, Sweet Oblivion, which I would put in the category of everybody heard the single, nobody listened to the album, or everybody heard, heard the two singles and didn't check out the album. And I think especially now with Mark Lanigan having become the uh, become the, the the big big name rock star that he is, this is an album that people should go back and check out. Absolutely. Very accessible. Yes, that album's fantastic. Solid. Got one more album I want to just throw out there. Um, yes. Also, there. Uh, I just uh, interrupt something. Sorry. Go right ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, also, uh, the Flaming Lips got big on their next album. Um, this is the year they put out their major label debut. Hit. Ah, uh, yes. Really good album. Every song on it's great. It also has by far the most annoying hidden track I've ever heard. So <laughs> definitely check out part of that hidden track. You will not finish it. I promise. But the album is great. <laughs> yep. I got to run through. I got four more, but I'll oh, do them quick. I'll run them through. I've got like a hundred. So, so um, <laughs> 92 is, you know, 91 is when I did my first interview. 92 is when I was kind of starting to really roll into it. And I interviewed Bob Forrest from Thelonious Monster, who nice. has since gone on to be Dr. Drew's partner on Celebrity Rehab. But at the time in 1992, it was their first major label record. It's called Beautiful Mess. Yep. Um, for those who don't know Thelonious Monster, I mean, Bob Forrest sold drugs to the Chili Peppers and the Fishbones and hung out. He was part of that crew, but never achieved the success they did. And they sort of, they all appeared as guests on that record, um, the guys from Soul Asylum. But when I interviewed Bob at the time, the two things he was famous for at that time was he smoked crack before singing the national anthem at the LA Clipper game and forgot the words and almost got beat up on his way out. And then right after that, he was in D.C., on stage and he made some comment like hey we should go kill george bush uh i hope that doesn't earn me a a knock on the door like it did him but he he um you know you don't make a threat to the president while you're playing in (laughs) dc without but when i when i interviewed him i asked him to 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 turn me onto a band that he had heard and he said he had been at a party in la and had seen this band called wax who a couple years later would put out the single california with a guy running down the street on fire but their first record was called what else can we do um great you know 25 minute eight or nine song, really quick kind of little pop punk stuff. When I saw them, they turned me on. So I kept asking people, so Wax, Bob Forrest turned me on to you. Who can you turn me on to? And they turned me on to Rocket from the Crypt, who put out Circa Now in 1992, another great record. And then the one other record I want to mention is um, I was dating. So I was, you know, everything we've talked about tonight is what I was into. Uh, I was a 21-year-old college, whatever year that is, sophomore? Sophomore, sophomore junior. Sophomore junior. And I started dating this, this girl and, and, and she, we did not share music taste at all. Um, she was from the Akron Canton area in Ohio. And um, she had kind of, she knew about this band called Over the Rhine who were from that area. Um, for those of you who don't know Over the Rhine, um, I don't even know how to describe them. Um, it was totally not my kind of music, but because we started dating, I ended up seeing Over the Rhine probably god like 30 times just because they were an ohio <laughs> band you know they, they they fell in line with like the cowboy junkie sarah mclaughlin it's kind of like that um uh, it's not folk rock but it's um 
it's not what I was, it was not Alice in Chains, but um, Patience came out that year. Uh, um, they put it out on their own. And then I think IRS signed them out of that. But um, over the Rhine in that 92 period, I kept forgetting how important they were to my life at the time. Um, and they're still around. And they've been very successful getting to just that point where they're like, they're, they're not a household name, but, uh, but they do very well when they play and, and they've never had radio hits, but it's just, it's just putting the work in and, and building your fan base a little bit at a time and, and just doing it. So I've got a couple next. of the baby. Oh, sorry. Uh, Go I've ahead. got a couple of debut. I've got a couple of debut albums, uh, uh, for this year, for 1992, that people may not realize that obviously become bigger players later in the year. Uh, Apex Twin uh, selected Ambient Works 1985 to 1982. That was their first album that came out. And The Prodigy Experience came out in 1992, their first album. And the, so, the Orb, yeah. the orb the came orb. out with UFO Orb that year, too. So Yeah, their first, year album came out the, their first album came out the year before, though. So. Yeah, so well, their yeah, second, I, I album. second album. Second yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, like, e even though right now, I mean, like, a lot of focus is in obviously grunge and metal and, and everything. I, I mean, th there are seeds that are being planted right now that, like I said, the crossover with industrial later on in, in, in a couple of years. And also now you've got two major electronic albums coming out this year for, for bands de debuting, and they'll obviously play bigger into uh, later in the 90s. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, speaking of, yeah. Oh, good. You went. Go ahead. All right, Phil. So, so I, kind of in line with what you were saying, Ian, the opinion is very divided on this one. The Cure's Wish. Ah. Oh, yeah. I love Disintegration. It's my favorite album. Wish. I do not care as much for. Well, you see and, that, and that, that that seems to be that seems to be a lot of the opinion. Yeah, I, I, like, I always found it very interesting because it was it was it was clearly both a, an attempt at capitalization of whatever disintegration did for them. But there's also a lot with, of change in the band as well with that album yeah. as well. So, yeah, and. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it was almost a celebration and a, par a self-knowing parody yeah. of what Disintegration achieved. I mean, with the painfully obvious hit single mm -hmm. and, 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 the, and the more pop-oriented arrangements and everything like that. It, I mean, I kind of I dug it in, in a more, in a more they're-in-on-the-joke kind of way. But uh, yeah, I I, yeah. I remembered but, but that they, one they, while we were while everyone was talking. Yeah, they followed up with the excellent uh, single "Burn" for the Crow soundtrack in 1994. Mm. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't totally dismiss the Cure in the 90s, but uh, I mean it's not uh, disintegration or um, the head on the door. <laughs> that was going to be sure. my answer for uh, yeah. what albums did not stand the test of time. I mean, wish. They looked it up. It's like yeah. it debuted at number two on the yeah. U.S. charts when it came out. But um, well, the, well, the, that's that was the beginning of SoundScan. So you saw yeah. a lot of albums do that right out of the box, right? Yeah. Um, that's why labels were scrambling this year because it came out the year before, and all of a sudden they're saying, "Okay, we're being lied to," and here's all this underground stuff that, uh, or or country <laughs> that, that's very popular. <laughs> 
and it's like, okay, what the hell do we do? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, uh, speaking of British bands and debut albums, a couple that came out from across the pond uh, that I got into uh, Ocean Color Scene. Their mm-hmm. debut album came out that year. Catherine Wheel for Mint. Uh, not a debut album, but in that same pool. And two, uh band that toured with those two bands together was uh, House of Love, Babe Rainbow. Uh, it was a great record I got into then. The Charlatans, Between 10th and 11th. Uh, all records that came out in 92 that I got into. As far as stuff here, um, some other things that I wanted to bring up that were uh, got kind of maybe overlooked. Uh, Big Car, band out of Texas called Big Car Normal. Uh, two feature members of Fastball were in this band ah. before the good power pop stuff. Uh, the Size out of uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, also kind of power poppy. They just put out their second album three years ago. Um, follow up, they're still doing stuff. They uh, band called Riverside out of uh, Pennsylvania area, Harrisburg. Uh, they were kind of like a sub band and produced by um, the Ocean Blues, Steve Lau. Uh, really good stuff. Uncle Green, Brandon uh, Brandon O'Brien kind of got a start producing these guys. They put out three albums independently. This was their major label debut on Atlantic Records called Book of Bad Thoughts. Uh, great record. Some of the songs were ones that appeared on the independent stuff. The album didn't end up doing anything, and then they changed their name to Three Pound Thrill and still went nowhere. Uh, <laughs> a Man Called E, before the Eels, Mark Everett, uh, had a little side project called The Man Called E. It was really good. Uh, Too Much Joy, their album, um, Jesus, uh, Mutiny came out in 92, was good. And I can't remember if you guys have covered these guys or not, but uh, the band The Origin and The Bend. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if you like uh, oh. Jellyfish and that sort of uh, kind of everything but the Kinshasa and Power Pop, then you probably dig uh, The Origin as well. Excellent. Um, you mentioned the British bands. I wanted to mention uh, Jesus and Money, Mary Chain. Jesus, yeah, and uh, Honey's yes. Dead. I really like that record. I, I, uh, that the first four records by the Jesus and Mary Chain are all like high on my list. Um, Jay, were there any ones that uh, you missed there that were missed that you, or are you just going with Life, Sex, and Death, and that's it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Saigon Kick, The Lizard. Did we talk about that? Yeah, briefly mentioned it. That's maybe our their best record. Um, I got, I, I don't know if it holds up. I need to go back, but I really got into the Wasp, the Crimson Idol that came out that year, which is a concept record. I can't <clears> imagine. It's bad. Um, you haven't mentioned Revenge by Kiss. Yeah, that was the last one I was going to bring up. Okay. You know, it's the best song on Holy is uh, the best uh, Gene Simmons track. Oh, there you go. Oh, there you go. Let's bring up some more. There you go. Warrior Soul, Get Donation. Yeah. I like that record a lot. Um, we need we're almost at the two hour mark so yep, yep. I, I need to i need to just mention a couple that haven't been brought up but i i enjoy um pop dropper by the bell tower which was uh um jody from uh fountains of wayne that was his band in the uk before he joined fountains of wayne um the first blind mr jones album we covered their second one but stereo musicale came out in 92 uh what else was there that was on my list. Uh, Circus Power, Magic and Madness came out in 1992. The uh, Falling Joys, which we covered. Psycho Hum, 
that came out in 92. Good record. I I can't believe this one hasn't been brought up. New Miserable Experience by the Jim Blossoms. <laughs> it's a hit machine right there. Let's see if we can get the camera to hit focus. Machine. Original cover. Uh, on Golden Smog by Golden Smog, which features just all covers. Yeah. Uh, Cowboy Song by Thin Lizzy. Shooting Star by Bad Company. That is a one of my favorites of that era. Um, the uh, band James Seven, their album came out in '92. That's a great one. Yeah, yeah. Born of Frustration. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. We we mentioned Erotica, but Madonna's Erotica is actually I I kind of like that record a lot. Uh, in terms of whole albums from her, a lot of the '80s stuff is kind of packed with singles, and then there's some sort of dud album tracks, but um. Erotica's a really good record. Uh, yeah, that, that one is surprisingly solid. And then um, an album that we covered on the podcast, Shot Forth Self-Living by Medicine, to go in the complete opposite direction of Madonna. Um, Neil Young's Harvest Moon, I think oh, my yeah. favorite album of his, probably from the 80s or 90s. Uh, great, great set of songs on that record. Um, we did mention Ride. Uh, what else did I have on here? Oh, uh, this one goes, to sh- this is a shout out for Neil Schmidt. Sade, uh, Love Deluxe, which has my absolutely favorite Sade song, No Ordinary Love. That is um, a great song. Just mm-hmm. perfect, a, a perfect song. And uh, one that uh, when I was driving around in my friend's Fiero in high school, senior year, we would blast the Soup Dragons. <sighs> Hotwired. Oh, that was another one I meant to mention too. Yeah. British that was bands. it. That was such a of the time uh album. Wait, hot hotwired was the one that had Divine Thing on it. Right? Exactly. Yes. Uh, now you see that I I listened to that one a couple of years ago. I so uh, I found a cassette in a in a bin that they were tossing away. So I that so sounds I about right. Uh, we haven't and, mentioned, uh, we will get yelled at if we don't, but Little Earthquakes by Tori Amos. This is, uh, <laughs> that's th- this is that year. Uh, and then I, I, this was the year where I, I definitely started listening to not just hip hop, but R&B. Um, you've got TLC's Ooh on the TLC tip. You've got uh, SWV, It's About Time. With I don't know if you guys remember the singles, I'm So Into You or Weak. Yep. Uh, those were some great songs. I, I believe... This is the year of En Vogue's Funky Divas, which yes. had just oh, killer sure. oh, yeah. singles, Free Your Mind, My Lovin'. Free Your Mind rocks as hard as anything that came out in 1990. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 the, and the saddest part is, they remix it and remove the guitars. Oh. My daughter and I watched uh, the 93 MTV Music Video Awards over break recently, and I can confirm that Free Your Mind dominated those awards. That, oh, yeah. and, oh. that and Jeremy. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, yes. that song slapped. Definitely. <laughs> and then this yeah. is also the year of uh, three years, five months, and two days in the life. Arrested Development. Arrested Development, oh, which I had on cassette, was a very important album for me. It was, uh, it was the first CD I bought at my... That and Get a Grip were the first used CDs I bought at my record store up the street for me that, that's still there to this day, but disappearing and moving later this year. So no, a little bit What's melancholy. The new, the new owners move in the store. And uh, but yeah, 
picked up picked up that one and get a grit used probably cost me six bucks total still have <laughs> them in my collection nice and uh Ooh. last but not least possibly the greatest uh hip-hop song of 1992 jump around by house of pain <laughs> uh, <Yep. laughs> you can you can, simply cannot top that Tim, real quick if, before we wrap up so you introduced me at the beginning my first interview with terry elos has been posted uh ian talked about planting seeds so the early 90s 1992 we were talking about all these you know run dmc's and the beastie boys and you know for better or worse and the mix of rock and punk and rap planted seeds for the later 90s and just a, a little spoiler the next interview is with maybe one of the lesser known bands that came out of those seeds so i'll leave you with that yeah i know i already know Phil doesn't know who it is, but Phil is not going to like it. <laughs> Challenge accepted. And uh, the seeds were planted because this is the year of, um, I believe, Biohazard put out an album. Oh my this goodness! Year, if uh, if memory serves, I, I I think so. So, yes, Urban Discipline, uh, the uh, the. Uh, is that the first Biohazard album? It might be. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't have the entire. I, I just remember. It's the second, uh, I think. Headbangers Ball just pushing that band so hard. Yeah, they, uh, but that was the follow-up State of the Union Address or something like that. State of the World Address. Right. In that funky neon green jewel yes. Oh, I, the one I saw was funky, funky neon orange jewel case. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right, orange. Yes. Yeah, the patch up was. was the green one. <laughs> you know, Eric, you got to bring up Cantaloupe in the actual show. You can't just put that in the chat. Uh, <laughs> Cantaloupe didn't come out in '92, did it? As a single, it did apparently. Yeah. Okay. Oh wow! So, right. That sounds a real. My, my wife absolutely loves that song. It's a decent album too. I mean, because I got all those Blue Note samples. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it basically rappers going over Blue Note music? Right, the same way that Much. Arrested Development is rappers going over Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, I mean, if it works, it works. If it well, works, I mean, it works. It's not like it's Jive Bunny or something. <laughs> there were a lot of evolutionary dead ends for rap around this time. There were <laughs> definitely ones that you can only pull it off once, and then you got to move on. To something else what um i correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't suzanne vega's 99.9 fahrenheit degrees in 92 i believe i saw that on my yes might have been i don't know i do know that this is the year of baby got back by uh, sir mix a lot uh which came out in uh, february and the uh single was released in may and i don't think we've ever recovered yeah from... whatever happened to becky <laughs> yeah i know i want you to do a song from becky's perspective yes 99.9 fahrenheit degrees of september 92 excellent excellent yay so all right not a total idiot we i think this is the point where um i will probably be editing and angry because of how long this has gone on but i'm not angry now because this was a lot of fun uh We've talked about so many records from 92. I'm sure we could keep going, but we have to We have to eventually at some point stop. So we're going to stop here, but of course we can continue this conversation at Discord. And if, if you're not yet a 
a member, you should join us over at uh, Patreon, join the DMO Union, and uh, talk more about 92 albums that uh, we didn't get to talk about. Uh, I need to thank Jeff, Phil, Chip, Citizen Eric, Joe, Hal, Ian, and Carl. Thank you guys for spending your Wednesday evening. Is it still Wednesday or we moved into Thursday yet? I don't know. No, no, it's still Wednesday. <laughs> I can't tell. Uh, I, thank you all. What time is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, gosh. Exactly. 11. It's 11. Uh, if you have to I'm get, gonna get for... three hours of sleep. <laughs> so. Okay. Is that when you have to start shoveling? When up, up there? No. Oh, God. <laughs> Bite no, it's your about... tongue. I get up at 3.30 every morning for work, so it's like... Ay, ay, ay. What are you doing? Yeah. Why are you here? Go to bed. Good sir. Uh, I only get about three hours of sleep a night anyway, Tim. I got the six-year-old. Come on. You know what it's like. Oh, it gets better. <laughs> yeah. It gets better. At some point, they'll, they'll just go to bed on their own. I don't think that's what that slogan <laughs> is supposed to go to. You can use it for a variety of things. It's multiple it's, meanings. It's it's uh <laughs> it's it's malleable. Thank you, gentlemen, for for joining us. This was a blast. I'm glad we got to talk about every album that came out in 1992. <laughs> Nobody talked about Amy Grant, but that's okay. Uh, we'll get to Bonus it on a content. future episode. <laughs> that was on purpose. And uh, want to remind everyone. Uh, that they can go to Patreon DMO Union to support the podcast. They can get the box newsletter there, which comes out every week. Two new reviews of 80s and 90s music relevant to the show. And they can suggest an album at digmeoutpodcast.com where they can find a link to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. Five stars. Help us take down the uh, Colossus Empire of NPR. So, for Jay and Jeff and Phil and Chip and Carl and Ian and Hale and Eric and Joe, I'm Tim, and we're out. And some of us will be back next week for another episode of Dig Me Out. <laughs>